I'm John Golia. And I'm Greg Fife. And we are the Flight Safety Detectives. We're just two guys who have spent most of their career with the National Transportation Safety Board investigating aircraft disasters and aviation safety issues all over the world. Yep, and this podcast is where we talk about everything from accidents, airplane technology, to the big business of aviation. We live and breathe aviation. My co-host John has been in the aviation business for more than 60 years. He was the first and only airframe and power plant mechanic to get a presidential appointment to the National Transportation Safety Board. And Greg is a former air safety investigator and GO team captain for the NTSB. He's investigated everything that flies worldwide since he started his career 40 years ago. And on top of that, he is a living legend of aviation inductee. So between John and myself, we have over 100 years of aviation safety experience. It's time to buckle up because it's going to be wheels up. Let's get this show in the air. Well, John, it's another episode of Flight Safety Detectives. Unfortunately, you and I have gone our separate ways after fortunately being together in Florida. So uh, I'm looking forward to us getting back. But more importantly, today is an important day with this show airing. And uh, we're going to be talking about that in a minute. But we definitely want to say thank you to all of our listeners and sponsors Uh, We can't ask for better sponsors and the listeners, of course, John, in reading all the emails, they are providing us donations to help offset the cost. So we want to thank all of our listeners for that. And of course, John, we want to thank our sponsors. Yes. And just a reminder to everybody that today's show is sponsored by PAMA. The Professional Aviation Maintenance Association, PAMA.org, and by Avemco Insurance. Avemco provides general aviation insurance for all general aviation airplanes, and they also do instructor insurance, CFI insurance. So if you have any insurance needs, if you're buying a new airplane and need health insurance, or if you need liability insurance, or if you're renewing, give Avemco a call at 888-879-0389. And if you mention the show, you'll get a 5% discount right off the bat. So that's uh, not too bad just for listening to the show. Again, 888-879-0389. Today is Charlie Taylor's birthday, and we have a special show in honor of Charlie Taylor. For those who don't know, Charlie Taylor was the Wright Brothers mechanic, and he, he did a, quite a few interesting things during that period of time. So today we're going to have a number of guests, but coming up right now is Ken McTiernan. Ken has been an aircraft mechanic for 30 years, more than 30 years, and he also has been uh, very instrumental in reaching out and trying to make young people aware of the opportunities that are available to them in the aviation field. And he has also been doing yeoman's duty and honoring Charlie Taylor. So without further ado, I'd like to to introduce Ken McTannan. Hello, John. Greg, thanks for having me back on the show. Oh, you're welcome, Ken. You earned it. You earned it. You know, we were down to... uh, Sun and Fun recently and did a TV appearance together, and that was fun. 
it's always fun being with you and Greg. Yeah, well, that's that's because it's entertaining for you to watch me and John sometimes make fools of ourselves, and of course, me just bang on John all the time for the fact that he's older than dirt, and the Wright brothers taught him to fly. So, <laughs> well, we're happy you're on the show, and um, I know that this particular gentleman, Charlie Taylor, means a lot to both you and John being in the business of, of aviation maintenance. And he does have an interesting backstory, as John opened up about being the Wright brothers mechanic. But of course, his his heritage with uh, aviation maintenance started in just regular maintenance. That is, he was doing maintenance on bicycles for the Wright brothers and then really got creative, was one of those kinds of guys that had a lot of out-of-the-box thinking for that period of time and listening to uh, to both you and John and talking about his history, the things that he accomplished, the vision that he had, which today really is rooted in the things that he he did back in the early 1900s. Can you give us just a brief overview of, of what that was and, and then what the Charles Taylor Award is all about and, and what you're trying to do to promote both, the, uh, both him and the award? Sure. Charlie represents the epitome of what our profession should always strive to be. Professional, skilled, and wrapped in integrity. Charlie never sought the limelight. There were no contracts for Pepsi or Nike sneakers. He did his job. He worked for the Wright brothers. The Wrights were ready to turn their glider into a flyer, but they needed the power for that. And the engine manufacturers back in 1903 were as big as living rooms. And they turned to Charlie and asked if he could build an engine for him. And he simply said yes. So with a napkin up against the wall in his workshop and a block of aluminum, six weeks later with a lathe and a drill press and some simple hand tools, Charlie created the first aircraft engine. And doing so became the father of aircraft maintenance, which thousands of men and women have followed in his footsteps. But we have Charlie to look back on to see how we should carry ourselves. Charlie was professional. So are today's men and women throughout the aircraft maintenance sector. Doesn't matter if it's commercial, military, private, corporate. We all carry the same burden of responsibility that Charlie did. Charlie had integrity. He took his job serious. So do we today. Charlie set the standard and the men and women that followed in his footsteps carry that torch today into tomorrow with the students that are coming in the pipeline. And John had mentioned again earlier in the show, something about a bust that represents Charlie and, and what that means in the industry. Can you explain the evolution of that and how it relates to the award in his name? Yes. Uh, Emery Riddle in Daytona, Florida, commissioned Virginia Hess, a very talented artist, to create a bust of Charles Taylor that they could have on display in their maintenance portion of their of their college. And after Virginia created that bust, Emery Riddle gave her the rights to the bust back to her. And 
she started selling those busts where we could donate those to different museums and organizations and companies. And the importance of having that bust, it's visual. You can look back and quite literally, you're looking at Charlie. He's just made out of bronze. And you can see what I said, the integrity. And you can also see the skill, the the look in his eyes. And it gives us something to focus on because we need to remember our past so we can look towards our future. And these busts allow us to do that, but they also allow people who don't know about Charles Taylor to see who he was and what he did. And in turn, where we all followed his guidelines of performing our craft. Uh, When you go to a nice aerospace museum, They have beautiful replicas, if not original aircraft, that have earned a place in aviation's history. But where are the men and women that maintain these aircraft? The closest you might get is a mannequin. That doesn't do respect to Charlie, because without Charlie, the Wrights may have not been the first empowered controlled flight, as there were other people around the world trying to lay claim to that. So having this beautiful bust made of bronze, standing there in silence, representing the knowledge, skill, and integrity of the craft that he created is a wonderful thing. You you can't put a price on that. So we all do owe some respect to Charlie for that. You've managed to uh, distribute a number of of, uh, busts. Yes, they're around the world. There's a the Aircraft Maintenance Technicians Association, the AMTA, we've donated bronze busts of Charlie to Le Mans, France, the U.S. Air Force Academy, the National Museum of the United States Air Force, the Stephen Udvar Hazy Center uh, next to Dulles Airport. American Airlines has several busts. United Airlines has a bus in Chicago's O'Hare Airport. So the the millions of people that go through their terminal can see not only Charlie, but the mechanics that work for United that have received the FAA award named after Charlie. And one of the things, Ken, that uh, we're very fortunate about in our relationship with John is the fact that he's a recipient of that award. Can you just describe, I mean, you've known him a long time. You guys are in the business. Who is John Golia? Well, that's going to take more than one podcast to explain about John Golia. But in a nutshell, John is the biggest proponent for our craft because John exemplifies what being an aircraft mechanic is all about. The unwritten motto for mechanics is, perfection is the minimum standard that we should strive for. And that's what John does every day when he was a mechanic and now on his podcast and as a consultant. The FAA Charles Taylor Master Mechanic Award, which John is a proud recipient of, an individual needs to have a minimum of 50 years in aviation. Of those 50 years, they need to be certificated airframe and power plant for at least 30. They cannot have their either certificate revoked. They basically have to be 
like Charles Taylor, do their job and move on to the next problem. And you need to be nominated with at least three letters of recommendation, which John had more than three letters of recommendation. And he received the award. And the reason the award takes a minimum of 50 years, because Bill O'Brien, the FAA inspector that created the award for mechanics, he didn't want something that everybody can get. It wasn't a participation trophy. It was to recognize people that really dedicated their careers and their lives to aircraft safety. And John is a perfect example of that in everything he's done. Well, my friends, I mean, those are uh, glowing words from Ken. And I know that you're just left speechless. That's why you're sitting there not saying anything. But I'm going to let you jump in and, and carry on this, uh, this conversation about what's on the horizon for aviation maintenance. Where is it going? I mean, the maintenance technician is kind of always in the shadow. It's, it's kind of been that the pilots, you know, are above the wing and the mechanics are below the wing. And there's always been a little bit of a stigma. But there is a lot of opportunity, not only in aviation, but now that we're going into private space manufacturing and, of course, launching and that kind of thing, is this going to open up the door for, quote, the new aviation mechanic now being a aerospace mechanic? Well, you know, the mechanic, Charlie Taylor's kind of mechanic, is still here working general aviation every day. But the business has changed considerably since the Wright brothers started it. And today we have turbine engines, both turbine uh, prop and, and full turbine engines. So those mechanics have had to make a transition themselves. And then to further that, closer to today, uh, everything is electronic. Everything's computer-driven. So the mechanics are taking on new skills with electronics. We have mechanics today working at SpaceX. And, you know, they're working black programs at Lockheed Martin. They're working on drones. And the FAA is looking, to, as we speak, to come up with the requirements for the drone. No pilot going out for the drone. So who's going to certify the airplane for flight? It's going to be the technician, the last guy to touch the airplane. The world is changing, and mechanics are going to have to change with it. And it, it appears we are changing with it. So, Ken, do you have an, a, anything to add to that? I know I capitalized a lot of the time there. No, I just uh, reiterate what you said, John, is that from day one with Charlie creating that first aircraft engine, mechanics that followed in his footsteps have stayed lockstep with each technological advancement in aviation. And that goes from the doping fabric aircraft now to, as you said, spacecraft rockets, SpaceX, Blue Origin. Who's going to maintain those? Are the students and also the men and women in the field today, they need to learn that technology, and they're going to do that, and they do it without any fanfare. They don't say, hey, look at us, this is what we do, because that's not what being professional is about. That's not having integrity, what having integrity is all about is we go out collectively. What is the issue? We make sure the issue is repaired, that that craft is safe for people to get on, whether it's one pilot or 
380 passengers. And the men and women today are holding the line, raising the bar that we measure ourselves by and handing that baton on to the students that are coming into the industry. And you can see an example of those students at the aerospace maintenance competition every year because these students are coming and showing what they're learning in their respective schools. And it's encouraging to see that. It's a relief to know that the level of professionalism is still there coming into the next generation. And boy, it is exciting to see those kids compete. And it's exciting to see all the, all the old gray hairs like myself that mentor them at the competition and before the competition and after. So that, that is really exciting. And it's fitting that the overall trophy at the aerospace maintenance competition has a bust of Charles Taylor on it. Going back to remembering our past so we can look towards our future. It's a very fun-filled uh, environment and experience. And anybody listening to this podcast, I recommend going to MRO America's Trade Show every April. And you can watch the next generation as well as, as you say, John, the gray hairs. Uh, show what we what we can do behind the scenes. Yeah, and you know, one of the things that, that uh, I would love to get an answer to, and I've never been able to, is... Henry Ford had some sort of a fascination with Charlie Taylor. He's recreated in the Henry Ford Museum, they've recreated Charlie Taylor's workshop from 1903, actually before even. Why? Why did he do that? Henry Ford didn't have a strong tie to aviation until he built the Ford Trimotor many years later. His car business was always already very successful. And the question I've been asking is this. When the Wright brothers were down in, in uh, Kitty Hawk, they were crashing that, that kite and the airplane pretty regularly. And they would call back to Dayton and tell Charlie what they broke, and he would make the parts and send them down to him. They put them on Railway Express, which I found that. And then the Wright brothers would fit them to the glider or the airplane, and off they went again to experiment some more. And that was years before Henry Ford started the assembly line, where we're building mass-producing cars instead of building them as one-ofs. And I often wondered if that's what, what the connection with Charlie was, the fact that he had to figure out about the ability to make parts fit separately by maintaining a set of standards for what he built for the entire structure. So it's just a, it's one of those unanswered, unanswered questions that I would love to have an answer to, but it doesn't seem like there is one to be had at this point in time. You know, when we look at it, what are you doing, Ken, as far as promoting? I know that uh, you, you, besides you and John, PAMA is very deeply involved in, in really promoting young people to consider aviation maintenance and, like I said, aerospace maintenance, since that's where we're moving into right now. What programs are out there? Where can uh, young people get information? And, of course, 
one of the things that I've read most recently is the fact that trade schools are, are really coming back into vogue for a long time. Um, of course, we've seen a lot of uh, high schools drop shop program and, and the automotive programs that they used to have. And some of the uh, vocational or technical schools out there fell off into the shadows. But I think they're coming back because a lot of a lot of young people have decided that college isn't right for them. But uh, they want to get into a technical trade. So can you talk a little about that real quick? Sure. To let the next generation of technicians know that this is an option and it goes for minorities, women. The airplane doesn't care who's maintaining the aircraft. It doesn't matter if it's male, female, tall, what your language is. The aircraft just wants to know about the integrity and knowledge and skill of the hand doing the repair and letting high school students know, hey, here's an option. If you like working with your hands and your brain and having a responsibility almost like none other, maybe being an aircraft technician is is for you. And getting that word out is being done by many organizations, especially the aerospace maintenance competition, because we're putting that right there on display for people to see. There are technicians in the industry. American Airlines has two technicians out of Chicago that work with local high schools. And with the backing of their local management, are busing kids into the brand new hangar and mechanics are actually volunteering. They're not even being asked. They're just volunteering to show these kids around and answer questions. Show them a 777 engine. Show them a triple seven cockpit and uh, letting them know what they need to do to enter this career field. There's organizations out there like ATEC and Northrop Rice Foundation that offer scholarships. So there's there's money out there. Really, that's all that's needed is the interest and the desire to enter this career field. And John has done a lot of that, not only with students. But getting the word out to the military, because men and women getting ready to separate from their respective branches may not be aware that you need to become certificated. Well, getting that word out to them helps them better prepare for their futures. Yes, the military, you know, they already have the discipline. They already have that aviation savvy because they've been working around the airplanes. Just got to fill in the skills and I'm part of the Aviation Maintenance Coalition, and uh, we actually have some programs to help transition those guys from the military to civilian life. And it's a lot better job than uh, many others that are out there for ex-military people. So I'm proud to be part of that organization. Well, I guess we've covered Charlie Taylor from this point of view, we got several other point of views to uh, to show dur- to share during this show. So, Ken, we'll let you get back to work now that we interrupted your workday. It's quite all right. It's my honor. We just remind everybody to stay stay tuned on this same podcast. It's just it's going to be a rather long one, but we have a few other people that want to talk about Charlie Taylor. So, and just a quick reminder: if you're looking for insurance. Call Avemco, 888-879-0389, 
hull insurance, liability insurance, uh, flight instructor insurance, anything general aviation related. And Greg, how close are you to getting your airplane insured? Pretty close now. Um, I, it, of course, my travel schedule has just screwed me up so bad, John, as usual, and COVID slowed it down. But that is my goal for June is to have the airplane and have it insured by a Bemco. So we are getting close. Yep. Okay. Well, good. Well, thanks again, Ken, for being on the show. Really appreciate it. And of course, you have now been anointed as a friend of the show. So Anytime we put the bat signal up or we call the uh, secret bat phone, you must answer because that means we watch on the show to, to pick your brain and uh, utilize your expertise in a variety of things. So thank you, Greg. I, I look forward to the next podcast. Good. And uh, John, I know that, again, we, we always try to appreciate our listeners. We've gotten some great feedback from them. And, of course, they're always asking us questions. There's been a number of maintenance questions in the past, and I'm glad that at least uh, we were able to enlighten the folks uh, to the importance of Charles Taylor, who really is uh, rooted in both of your backgrounds. So uh, we're fortunate to have had that education, and I think that going forward in, uh, in future shows, we will be talking about more accidents and incidents related to maintenance because it is all about learning. It is all about identifying shortcomings so that we can improve safety. I mean, that's what it's all about. So we know that the men and women out there who uh, maintain the airplanes you know, I've always said about my mechanic, I have it, I have tacit trust in my mechanic, but like Ronald Reagan said, trust but verify. And in talking to my maintenance folks and, and my mechanic in particular, I get them to try and educate me. I want to know exactly what they touched, what they did. One, for my own edification and, and of course, education. But two, if something happens after I've taken off and I'm flying away, I knew what they touched. Maybe it's something associated with it. I have a better opportunity to either troubleshoot or or uh, at least figure out what I need to do to get the airplane back on the ground safely. So I can't say enough about the, the folks that have maintained my airplanes over the years. They've been extremely professional and put up with me getting into uh, the dirty details of all the work that they've done. Rudder travel pitch field. Nine. Nav exterior light. Servo control. Nine. Engine start panel. Rank it aboard. Fire handle. Hello. Seat belt no Emergency exit minimum cabin line. This show is being brought to you by PAMA, the Professional Aviation Maintenance Association, as well as Avemco. Avemco is a, a, a direct insurance company. In other words, you don't have to go to a broker. And uh, they are aviation-focused. They don't sell boat insurance or anything else. It's strictly aviation. And if you need to renew your policy on your airplane, how loss, if you need need anything at all in the line of insurance, give Avemco a call. 888-879-0389 is their number. And Avemco.com, naturally on the Internet. They are good people, and they actually once insured greg so i'm not so sure <laughs> yeah yeah well they took a chance on me john you know I, uh, <laughs> and i'm gonna be um having them take another chance on me here shortly so 
Well, with us today, we have Dave Supley. Dave Supley has uh, uh, been a mechanic for many, many years. Presently, he works for the Machinist Union, International Association of Machinists and Aerospace Workers. He's the head of one of their uh, districts, they call them, one of their elements. I worked with Dave for years and years. In fact, too many years that I don't even want to count them. Welcome, Dave, to the show. Thanks, John, for having me. I appreciate the offer. All right, so we want to talk about Charlie Taylor and what it means to not only you as an individual, but to, to the people that you represent in the business. And, uh, you know, most people, even mechanics, don't know about Charlie Taylor, don't know some some of his accolades and some of his, uh, he was cranky. It was real interesting. I've been following Charlie Taylor. I've been uh, mentoring uh, New York City Aviation High School. Uh, we take them to the MRO competition. And at the MRO competition, one of the tasks is a study on Charles Taylor to get the young kids to understand what they are about and who Charlie Taylor was. So it was really interesting reading up and, and knowing the background. And he was the mechanics mechanic. He did does like most of the mechanics in today's world. You know, we have a task. We focus on that task, and we do our best to make that happen. Charlie Taylor, you know, worked there in, in Dayton with the rights on, uh, really initially with their bicycle company and helping them make parts to fix bicycles. And then the Wrights brothers decided to start start flying and got this idea, if we can get an engine, we can do more than just glide down a hill. We can maybe sustain flight for a period of time. You know, and the Wright brothers reached out to the auto manufacturers and other engine manufacturers, and in their mind, they had a goal. If we could have an engine that would produce six horsepower and weigh less than 200 pounds, we could make our goal and we could sustain flight for a period of time. Unfortunately, none of the auto manufacturers or engine companies wanted to have anything to do with this. So they reached out to Charlie and said, hey, what, you know, can you help us out? Can you make this? And um, off of basically a napkin drawing, Charlie went about and created an engine for the Wright brothers. And, you know, come to think of it, you know, if, if they w may have went with the auto industry or another engine manufacturer that gave them what they wanted, a 200-pound engine with six horsepower, not so sure if December 03 would have happened in history. Charlie went about and created an engine from scratch that created 12 horsepower. I think that's really what helped help the, the Wright brothers get to their goal. And then reading on how he went about making this engine was just remarkable to take a crankshaft and uh, to create the crankshaft from a slab of steel, drilling out the outline of what that crankshaft was supposed to look like. Uh, hammering out the chunks that he drilled out and then gradually turning that down into a crankshaft from a slab of steel is just amazing. And uh, and doing this all with looking at a drawing from a piece of paper. So it was really interesting to to see, you know, what he did with the tooling and, and expertise that he had at the time. You know, I remember some people in Washington 
and I think it was at the Smithsonian, but it may, might have been Flight Safety International, in uh, a foundation, rather, Flight Safety Foundation. But in any event, they had a couple of people that tried to recreate that crankshaft from the tools that were available to Charlie Taylor in his shop. And uh, after considerable time and effort, they were unable to uh, build the engine. And so it's amazing that he had got it done. I, I assume that it was a lot of grinding and filing to go because he, he had a drill press and a lathe and uh, some hand grinders, and that was it. And to do it in such precision, you know, to have it, you know, come out within thousands of an inch and to be balanced, and to it's just remarkable. That's the part that really struck me. Um, but, you know, it wasn't as if that's all he did. You know, it wasn't like he just built the engine and, okay, here's your engine, go out and fly your contraption. He worked with the Wright brothers. He, he helped them, you know, mount the engine. They realized, well, we couldn't put the engine in the middle of the aircraft. If something happened, it would fall over. It could fall on the pilot. That, that wouldn't, be, wouldn't be good. So they offset it. You know, in initial testings, they were having problems with the prop shafts. Again, Charlie's jumped in, the go-to guy to, you know, let's make this happen. And they modified the prop shafts on it. So, you know, he, he did that to get the airplane to fly. And then to help perfect that, he helped and build a wind tunnel for the Wright brothers so that they could test future designs and, and make tweaks to make their aircraft much better. So it was more than he built an engine for the Wright brothers. Just very, very interesting man. And for both you and, and, and Greg, both being from the NTSB, he was one of the original accident investigators in the 2000 or 1908 crash when Orville took up Thomas Selfridge and the plane crashed. You know, after the devastation, Charlie felt somewhat responsible, felt he had to get involved and investigate and find out what caused that plane to crash. And it turned out that they had just put new propellers on that aircraft and one of the propellers were was delaminated. So one of the, one of the first accident investigators. You know, Dave, it's, it is interesting because when you just described all of his capabilities and talents and, and exploits, you know, I was just trying to think who today would be his equivalent. And it's amazing that there are teams of people that could be his equivalent. I can't think of one person in modern aviation that's his equivalent. We have engineering support and we have technical support and we have all these groups of people to make the aircraft go. But to have one individual to do all of that, it's a huge undertaking, even you know, for the pilots that are in the home-built realm. They go to an engine manufacturer. They go to a company that has already designed the aircraft. They put it together. But all that background work has already been done for them. You know, For his time, he was far in advance of just, just a mechanic. Uh, you know, and as, as, a, as a technician, you know, a lot of us say, I'm, I'm just a mechanic. And, and you know, without the mechanic, without the technician, uh, a plane doesn't go. Uh, and and I, I like, you know, your, your lead in on the, the cooperation and the 
interactions between flight crews and, and mechanics. Uh, when I was still working on the floor and working line maintenance, you know, I made a point of going out and meeting the crew when they came in in the morning to get the aircraft, talk over any issues they may have. If I was working during the day when the airplane came in on through flights after the passengers got off, stick my head in the cockpit, Captain, how we doing? Everything okay? It's key. One doesn't operate without the other. We, we both have to be on the same page. And John and I have talked about this, especially for general aviation pilots. There is this tacit level of trust that you take your airplane in, the mechanic turns the wrench, they do what they, I guess, were supposed to do. They sign off a logbook and these pilots, without ever querying the mechanic as to exactly what you did, show me what you did so that I understand what you did. They just, you know, pick up the airplane, pay the bill and go. And then next thing you know, if you do have a problem, you don't understand what that mechanic did or touch something else other than what the original problem is. And and I've always, whenever I've taken my airplane in, I've had my mechanic as much as I trust him. I want you to explain to me exactly what you did, how you did it so that I understand it. And did you touch anything else? Because if I take this airplane and something, you know, starts to go to hell in a handbasket <laughs> i want to know what else you touched yeah yeah so when, when you do have that problem okay well i know i just talked to the mechanic i was actually having this work done but he did mention i he did a little bit on this piece so maybe that's something that's causing what i'm seeing the problems i'm having we always i always enjoyed having that discussion with the crew at the end of the at the end of the night before he you know took the plane out in the morning had that discussion with him even way yeah, back in the day general aviation you know having the guy walk the floor with me you know yeah i think it's a it's a great education it's you know for those guys who are just pilots who may not necessarily be mechanically inclined at least it gives them an understanding so that they know that, hey, talking to this mechanic, especially somebody that has never, that you're not normally interacting with, if they can't explain it to me, should I really have the confidence in what they did with my airplane? Right. Because right. Uh, John and I, we talk about this all the time. As a flight instructor, if I can't explain something in a very succinct manner so that you understand it, and I'm him hawing around and, you know, pie in the sky kind of stuff and beating around the bush. How much confidence are you going to have that I'm going to be able to teach you to fly if I can't explain it? <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. Yeah, he was a unique individual on, on that front, and you know, he actually left the Wright brothers uh, not long after that accident, and he went to work for Cal Rogers, and Cal Rogers was out for the trophy and the money prize for flying the first airplane across the country. And uh, what they did was they followed the railroad tracks, east to west, sort of. It wasn't a direct line. So they zigzagged across the country following the railroad lines. And Charlie Taylor was on the train with all kinds of spare parts for the airplane because it broke down. I forget how many times they had to rebuild the engine en route. It was several I read uh, read a little bit uh, up on on that uh, you know 49 days to make it across the country. I believe you know the, throughout the time it, he had 16 crashes of the aircraft, and I believe once when it finally made it to the other end of the line, basically the vertical 
was about the only re- only original part left on the aircraft. Because, uh, as, as you said, Charlie followed in in uh, the rail car, had a whole rail car of spare parts. So that was the uh, ultimate field service. You know that. And that when you mentioned the spare parts piece, Howard Duford wrote one of the books about Charlie. I guess it's the most uh, thorough. But in any event, one of the things, one of the questions I've asked and have not have answered, is the relationship between Charlie Taylor and Henry Ford. For some reason, Henry Ford, who wasn't known for liking a lot of people, took a liking to Charlie Taylor, and. Uh, you know, if you go ever go out to the museum, the Ford Museum, and uh, I think it's in Dearborn, Michigan. It's in Michigan, and uh, he has a recreation of Charlie Taylor's Wright Brothers shop. And there's there's really at those time frames, there's really nothing that says there was a connection between those two guys. And uh, one of the things I got thinking about, and this is the question I was asking that I've yet to have answered, is that in the 1901 time frame. When the Wright brothers would down would go down to Kitty Hawk and test their their kites, essentially their wing designs and all, they were crashing those things pretty regularly, and they would call back to to uh, Ohio and tell Charlie what they needed, and Charlie would make the pieces and send them down. Now, in an age of when everything was hand built, parts interchangeably. Ability interchangeability was was at best uh, weak. Charlie was doing this on a routine basis with the brothers, sending the pieces down over and over and over until even right up to the final when the testing. Even after they started to fly, they crashed, and he would send these pieces down. Now I wonder. Then this is where the question comes in. I wonder if. That was the tie-in with Henry Ford, because a short time later, he started introducing the standard parts to build his Model Ts. And that's when he started paying the the, uh, assembly line workers a decent wages, because they could pump out these these automobiles quite quickly, because the pieces, the bits and pieces, were already manufactured, so they weren't being hand-fitted. And... Nobody that I that has that I know of that's done any research on Charlie Taylor could ever make that connection, but it certainly seems strange, you know. And then and then reading other material, do you know in in the in the, in the First World War, nineteen seventeen, when we had to crank up our armaments armaments business to get going, the uh, the interchangeability of parts for our rifles was non-existent. They would provide the armorers with bits and pieces that were all oversized, and they would have to be hand-fitted. And that was a problem in the First World War, 1917, 1918. So you can imagine, here was you know, roughly 15 years earlier, Charlie Taylor was doing that on a routine basis. There's a disconnect in there between this Charlie Taylor's skills and what the rest of the industries in the U.S. were doing. And I just often wonder... If he could have been the source of the uh, inspiration for getting standard parts for everywhere, because he just did it routinely, even when the Wright brothers were in Paris flying their airplane, he had he brought parts with him. Did Charlie Taylor have any affiliation with any 
eventual company that started mass producing, you know, spare parts or parts like that? Was he ever, you know, in the, in the latter stages of his life, you know, um, the CEO of a company that did that? No, no. He he ended up working. His wife got sick, asthma or something like that, and needed the dry climate. So he left Ohio and, and they went to California. And he worked for some of the aviation manufacturers out there, but uh, never at a high level. He was a worker bee, always a worker bee. In the 40s, when he he was already quite old, 80s, the Wright brothers always said they were going to take care of Charlie, but that what they provided for him was really pretty insignificant. And it ended up the uh, Aerospace Industries Association, which is a collection of manufacturers, they ended up paying for Charlie's care in an assisted living type facility, which we call today. They don't call them them, that them. But uh, they paid for his his care until he died. And he's buried out in California in Burbank. I've actually been there. Hey, Dave, when you teach at that high school, and and you were saying earlier that you know, part of uh, the, the high school program is the kids understanding who Charlie Taylor was and doing that kind of research. What's their response to his, you know, just what we talked about, his accomplishments, his, his out-of-the-box thinking, his, his talents? Do they give you any feedback? Is it, is it something of an off moment for them or it's just, yeah, whatever? It is an amazement from them that someone back then without the without the assistance of CAD drawings and computers and all the high-tech tooling that's available today he did this the way you know especially if you read through how he did this crankshaft these the, the kids are just amazed that something like that took place and that it actually created an engine that worked it's sort of like that aha moment wow a person could do that on their own through a piece of paper drawing to see the eyes light up. Wow. It is amazing. Yeah. We need more of that encouragement and enthusiasm and education to bring these kids to, there's more than an iPhone, <laughs> you know, yes. let's let the iPhone do the mathematics and let the computer design that engine, uh, you know, you get back to creative thinking and I think we've lost that in these generations. I mean, yes, we have new technology, if you will, coming forward. But when it really comes to creative thinking, is it the human doing the creative thinking or the computer doing the creative thinking based on a very simplistic idea? Right. And that's one of the things that we're focused on is trying to attract the young people in aviation, no matter what field it is, whether they want to be a pilot or an engineer or the mechanic on the floor, try to get them to understand that this is a really good industry to be in. A lot of the people that uh, I work with are now leaving the company and we're going to have a shortage of mechanics as we are with the pilots too. And we need to do something to attract the younger generation to, to look at this as a good career to go to and these kinds of stories that here's an individual from humble beings i mean the charlie taylor was not rich by any means of uh, imagination and he was able to go forward and do this and you know as as a result of his actions we were able to get 
sustained powered flight. So if he can do it, anyone can do it with a little bit of support and and guidance. Here's a question for both you and John. With what's going on now with private space, you got the Elon Musks of the world. You have Jeff Bezos and that kind of thing. What is it? Or is there now a new mechanic or maintenance tech market going to emerge, like we've seen with aircraft, where you're going to have to have a cadre of, quote, mechanics who can fix rockets and, you know, fix the systems on rockets and all of that kind of stuff? Is that going to be a new part of the industry? It already is on uh, SpaceX and other in Virgin uh, Galactica, they have been hiring A&P mechanics to work at their facilities out in the in the uh, in Houston and in, in uh, the desert of California. So we already have people there. We also already have A&P mechanics working, maintaining drones. So it's coming. The industry, even though it's not required of them, the industry recognizes the skills that the mechanic brings because of his basic knowledge that he has, basic training, so to speak. In fact, that in, in my work at the NTSB on railroad accidents, which I, by the luck of the rotation, I got a lot of railroad accidents in my years that I was there. I actually ran across an A&P mechanic driving a locomotive. The head end is what they call it. So he's in the locomotive. He's the actual engineer driving the train. And uh, we were going over the mountains in California and talking, and I'm talking to the vice president of the of the Burlington Northern Railroad, and when it got quiet, this uh, young man driving the train says, said to me, he said, you an A&P mechanic? I said, yes. He said, so on I. He said, I got tired of being laid off with McDonnell Douglas, and I got it. And the, uh, the VP then said to me, and I'll hire everyone I can get my hands on. I can teach them to drive a train in less than a week but I can't teach them they understand pneumatics, vacuum, and electrical systems in a week. So I'll get every every, every A&P mechanic I can get my hands on, I'll hire to, to drive my trains. So other industries recognize the the uh, that skill level, that understanding that crosses lines. You know, you, there's electricians out there that probably know more, and I'm sure they do, not probably, know more about electricity than the average A&P. And there's people out there in the, in the pressure side, pneumatics and, and vacuum side, that understand more about those systems than an A&P. But it's unusual to find all of those different skills at a more than basic level in one individual. You know, understanding composite materials. And I, and I laugh all the time when I, and I get angry, too, when I hear people talk about we don't teach composites. We're starting to now, but for years that was the same. And people forget that the world's very first composite in aviation was dope and fabric. Linen and, and, and dope is what we call it. Acetate and something else. And it would firm up and make that cloth strong. Well, that's what, that's what today's composites are. Different materials, but it's the same principle. So having those skills in one individual, having that basic understanding, can go a long way across many industries. So I think mechanics 
A&P mechanics sell themselves short sometimes when they don't consider other areas that their skills can take them. And we had, you know, back right after 9-11 and the industry was had, to, had its turn down and uh, the economy was going south, we had several mechanics that had lost their jobs, were furloughed. They found jobs working at the amusement parks, working at Disney, working at Bush Gardens, because they, they could follow schematic diagrams and they knew electronics, they knew electrical, they know servo motors that were used on these rides. We had groups up in New York that were being hired to repair elevators because they knew hydraulics. And again, they knew to, to the wiring diagrams that could follow schematics and follow plumbing for hydraulics and could understand all that stuff. So cruise industries, you know, people were being hired because of avionics and navigations very similar to what's being used on boats. So the the as John aptly stated, you know, the, the aircraft technician has all this experience provided through his training. And uh, you know, we're moving into the additional of space issues of the fuel flowing with the solenoids that you would open up this, you'd have a pressure sensor that would then relieve pressure off the valves and one of, I think in the skills competition that we I had mentioned earlier, one of the space companies was there to to show that of how the fueling and you would troubleshoot solenoids and valves and pressure switches. It's just opening doors to, to more areas for technicians to be to be out there in the world. Okay, I've got another question for both you and John. And John and I have talked about this a little bit on previous shows. As a pilot, especially one uh, commercial pilot, you know, we're constantly going back for recurrent training. And it's on a regular basis. We have to meet a standard to maintain our levels of proficiency and that kind of stuff. Do you see or do you believe that there is more of a need for more either training or recurrent training on the maintenance side of the house, similar to the demands that we put on pilots since the technology is constantly changing and trying to stay up with it? Now, I know that on the, you know, the, the airline side, yes, I mean, you've got a lot of guys that are are staying up with the technology, but John and I, part of this show is focused in the general aviation community. Should there be requirements for those mechanics that aren't working at the airline level to at least demonstrate levels of proficiency or new training, stay up with the technology that we're seeing gravitate into the experimental and, and GA markets? Without a doubt. I've long believed, 30 years at least, that a mechanic should have a requirement for recurrent training, even in, down to the general aviation pool. And boy, did I get some arguments and pushback from, from people that uh, work on Cessnas only. And they don't need it. The airplane hasn't changed in 50 years, and they didn't need any, any uh, recurrent training. You know, recurrent training is an indication of professionalism. You want to be a professional, you have to stay on top of your game. And that includes the entire game, not just a tiny little piece of it. You know, so if you're working on, on continental engines, uh, you can be a professional in continental engines by staying up 
in, in tune and being trained on every piece of it. There's always something new in this business. We change materials. We change lots of things on engines, but the engine looks the same. So there's, there's a lot of information that's out there that every mechanic that's working on the airplane, that system of an airplane, can use. So I'm a firm believer that the FAA should require mandatory recurrent training. Will we ever get that? It's going to be difficult because who's going to pay for it? The individuals are oftentimes are not in position to pay for it, and the companies don't want to increase their costs. Now, the business community is a little different. You know, so we, when you're flying these Gulf Streams that cost, you know, $100 million, they're hiring a mechanic to take care of their airplane and, and essentially uh, take care of all the pieces of it. Even though they, they reach out and have other companies do it, that person is providing the oversight. And in many ways, they're very, very professional already, but they're not called professionals. And we need to change that. And I would agree. I would agree with that, that, uh, you know, as you said, you know, within the airline industry, we see recurrent training on a regular basis. It may be a computer-based uh, course that we may need to take. We may need to go away for a day or two, or they may bring a trainer in to train us. But, you know, the individual work in general aviation, especially with technology changing as it is, you know, we're going from the old steam gauges to the glass gauges uh, or glass cockpits and how that interacts with everything. There's so much that's going on that if you're not up on the game, you're going to be left behind. And I would agree with John. It's going to be a battle to get there for the reasons John raises. You know, everybody's looking at the money and who's going to pay for doing that. The operator, the the company, or the individual technician himself. Uh, but I think it's something that's definitely definitely needed. Well, I don't think it's I don't think it's wrong for the individual to pay for it. I mean, every two years I got to do recurrent training to maintain my flight instructor certificate. I do an online course because with my schedule, I'm I mean, yeah, I fly occasionally with students and that kind of stuff, but because of my schedule. Uh, you know, I'm not flying on a regular basis. So when I do my recurrent, you know, there's a couple of, uh, I think there's three different providers of the flight instructor refresher course that once you go through it, it's an intense course. The FAA has set mandatory limits and, and topics that need to be covered. And once I pass all these successfully, then they reissue my flight instructor certificate. Yeah, I mean, we have the technology, we have the capabilities. And, and, you know, so it's not beyond the realm of reality that a mechanic every two years or whatever has to be, I won't say recertified, but has to demonstrate either proficiency or currency of some sort. And, and again, those results get pumped to the FAA. They're tracked, uh, to, you know, as part of their, uh, it's kind of like an IA. You got to go get the IA refresher. To maintain your IA, so why not do the same kind of thing for a certificate holder? Again, because the technology is changing, and with all of the glass cockpit capabilities, I mean, hell, you look at you know Piper; they have the quote Halo system. It's an auto land system. You tell me how many mechanics out there around the country, the mom and pop shops, or even some of the the larger facilities, know how to fix that halo system it's a brand new system it's in operation but the hell's going to fix it that's 
that has to go back to the to the the shops that are really associated with the manufacturers because they'll they will provide the training to those those people. But you're right. I mean, there's just even the general aviation aircraft today have become very very complicated and very electronic. So it's going to take uh, well trained maintenance personnel to return those airplanes to service, whether it's a a modern Cessna, or if it's a SpaceX airplane, or if it's a uh, Lockheed drone. All right, it's going to take a well-trained maintainer to keep it. And, you know, another piece that nobody's talking about. We're talking about having these, these airplanes fly around, air taxis, pilotless. They're going to take people from point A to B. New York City wants to, they want to run one from JFK to downtown to get people to JFK at 5 o'clock in the afternoon when the traffic is just not moving. No pilot. Who's going to certify that airplane that's okay to fly? It's going to have to be a maintainer. It's going to have to be somebody that can understand the systems. So these are all things that are being talked about now that are going to affect us in the future because the future is changing and changing drastically. And that's even more of a concern, you know, having an aircraft with nobody at the controls, all automated, you know, at least, you know, in a regular aircraft, you have the pilot that can try to troubleshoot, you know, as he's going along, what's happening to my aircraft. That definitely, uh, definitely needs the, the qualified individuals that are out servicing that aircraft, that whatever that's going to be called drone, uh, taxi, whatever we want to call that. Well, I think you're going to have to have certified people because every time that aircraft Prior to takeoff, somebody's got to pre-flight it. It can't pre-flight itself. Well, right. it could. I mean, there are systems checks. But you're going to have to have somebody that can walk around the aircraft to make sure there's no battle damage, if you if you will, before you know it flies off into the abyss on its own. <laughs> so you still need human interaction and human intervention, at least in some phase of this pilotless operation. And again... It's all about the technology and the understanding by that particular individual to make sure that everything is good to go before uh, before it launches. Well, guys, this has been a very interesting discussion. Yeah, we appreciate you, Dave, being on and educating us about Charlie Taylor and of course, John is my walking encyclopedia of uh, of maintenance. So I try to stump him, but you know, I've I've not been successful lately. So. <laughs> yes, yes. Well, I appreciate uh, the time uh, to talk about Charlie. Happy birthday, Charlie! And uh, look forward to doing this again. Yeah, well, my friend. We tell good going, Greg. Tell him the punishment he gets for being on the show. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Your punishment now, Dave is that you are a friend of the flight safety detectives. Therefore, you can't hide because we will track you down (laughs) when we need subject matter expertise. So you can go to all parts of the world. We will find you because we are the flight safety detectives. And now that you're a friend of the show, you're going to be on a uh, a regular basis, uh, our subject matter expertise. So... That is your penance for <laughs> being a participant yes. on the show. I look forward to that. Thank you all. Hey, thanks, Dave. Rudder travel pitch field. Nav exterior line. Servo control. 
Engine start panel. Crank it aboard. Fire handles. Seatbelt no smoke. Today we have a couple of international reps from the International Brotherhood of Teamsters, as well as the three of us, myself, Chris Moore, and Bob Fisher, sit on the board of directors for the Aviation Maintenance Coalition, Mechanics Coalition. And we're here today just to talk about aviation maintenance in general and Charlie Taylor specifically. So thank both of you for being part of the show. Glad to be here, John. And thanks for having us. Yeah, well, I'm glad to have you. Uh, anytime we can promote aviation maintenance today in particular, given that uh, not a lot of people have been entering the, the skill because it takes a lot of work. Many people don't realize that the education that goes into making an aviation mechanic is broad and can be challenging. And, you know, just like when you go to college, you're going to sit down and take a final, only this final is administered by the FAA, and it's not so easy. So having said that, Charlie Taylor... We'll start with Chris, I guess. Chris, what does Charlie Taylor mean to you? So I, I when I when I go back and I look at his history, it's just amazing what he was able to accomplish. I like the fact that you talked about the engine that that he built from scratch on their specs, and you talk about twice the horsepower, but it was twelve horsepower. And think about that in today's world as as much power as we, you know, if you look at a triple seven and a GE ninety that's developing ninety thousand pounds of thrust per engine, as opposed to the meager twelve horsepower engine that uh, that uh, Charlie Taylor put together. So, you know, there's a guy that was dedicated to his craft and essentially became the guy. Not only did he invent the engine, but he he maintained the aircraft every night as well. And Bob, I'll just throw it over to you. I think that, you know, obviously without Charlie Taylor, none of us would be here talking about this. It can't be overstated the importance of what he did for the Wright brothers. John, you brought up the fact that he exceeded expectations, and certainly that that was one of the talking points I was going to bring up. I think it also speaks to the fact that pilots rely largely on good, skilled maintenance. The fact that they kept Charlie from becoming a pilot later in his life because they wanted to keep him on the maintenance side of things, I think speaks volumes. Uh, pilots know when they have good mechanics, and this industry uh, relies on high-quality technicians. And he brought the forefront at the very beginning, and I, I think we all try to emulate that now. So it means a great deal to me in particular. Well, I see you fly your airplane all the time, so you're catching on both sides. For sure. And I have a very good mechanic that I rely on. <laughs> not not just myself. I want somebody that's actually going to look at the plane that has experience on the smaller planes since I came from the bigger ones. But it's important to have that relationship. Yeah, Greg, you always talk about the relationship with the maintenance people that uh, take care of your airplane. Absolutely. I think it's probably one of the most important relationships I have because I depend on my maintenance folks to not only take care of the airplane, they have to have ultimate tacit trust and confidence in the work that they're doing because as soon as I break ground with that airplane, now it's up to me to make sure that I keep it flying. But uh, in order for me to get there, it takes, a, it takes my mechanic 
doing the right thing and educating me on what they have done with the aircraft so that if, in fact, something does occur, at least I have a heads up and I may be able to handle it if, if it isn't too compromising. So it is an important relationship. But we have talked about this, John. There are different skill levels with these maintenance techs just because they hold an AMP certificate in their pocket. They are not all cut out of the same piece of cloth, and sometimes that step two can be a concern. I've run a number of accidents like you have where they've been maintenance-related, and it's because, like pilots, you know, trying to take a shortcut, trying to do things beyond their respective capabilities. Folks do that on the maintenance side of the house, and, and I know that we've also had a discussion about professionalism and and they all go hand in hand. And I'm glad that we have to talk about that because I think that's an important characteristic of not only pilots, but maintenance folks as well. All right. So the, the relationship between the pilot and mechanic is critical for many phases of flight. And now we're going to see some expansion on that. I want to talk about Charlie Taylor, but because of what you just said, you you also bring up an important point with today's unmanned taxis that are just around the corner. You know, JFK to downtown Manhattan is on the very near horizon. Pilotless airplanes. It's going to who's going to certify that airplane? Who's going to make sure that it's ready for flight? It's going to take a professional mechanic there, and we see today SpaceX and Virgin Galactica all hiring mechanics to work on their their uh, rockets on the flight line, as well as they're also hiring mechanics with expertise and certification in the rules, the FARs, because they're now going to be faced with some of that as they move out of the experimental stage and into into production. So that's, these are two areas that are, that are on the horizon big time for future employment opportunities for maintenance people. But let's go back to Charlie Taylor. And we talk about the engine that he built and the horsepower, but we didn't talk about the complexity of him building it with the tools that had he had available at that time. Making a crankshaft using a drill press, a hammer and chisel, and files. I don't know that I could do that. And I don't know that there are many people in this country that can. I understand that uh, I was told this years ago that there was a group of people that tried to duplicate that task and they were not able to build the engine. So his creativity had to be uh, heads and shoulders above a lot of other people, and I'm sure that's including me too. Chris, what do you think about that? So, John, I, I, I got to tell you, and, and I would be remiss if I, if I didn't say, if you ask me, and, and Bob will probably agree, that, that integrity, I think, is, is the most important part. Yes, you have to have a skill level, of course, to do the job, but, but the, the integrity, and that's what I think Charlie Taylor really brought um, at the very beginning of all of this. And we continue that today with Bob and I. Um, I, I won't speak for Bob. I'm, I'm the old guy. I'm, <laughs> I'm, I'm getting towards the end of my career. And that's the one thing you pass down to the new guys, right? No matter what, is how critical the job is and how important it is that you own whatever you do, right, wrong, or indifferent. And, and that, that helps a lot to prevent accidents as we know them in the industry. But I went back and I looked and so, so Charles Taylor actually 
created a cast aluminum block for this engine. And that just boggles the mind, right? When, when you think about the technology at the turn of the century um, into 1900 and, and the fact that, that here we are with this kind of a, it was all about the weight of the aircraft and the, uh, the, the strength to weight ratio of the engine. And, and that's why he ended up with an extra four horsepower. But, you know, I, I, again, the forward thinking of this guy and to think he started out in a bicycle shop, right? It's, it's just amazing. So it just, it just goes to show that aviation maintenance technicians are very innovative, innovative people, right? Because you go to work every day. It's not the same job. It's not for the most part, like punching the clock. You don't know what you're going to get when you get to work what kind of a, an issue you're going to be dealing with and what kind of aircraft you're going to be dealing with it. So you've got to be very nimble. And again, it, it really is about the quality of your work. So, Bob? Yeah, I would just say that he was a fantastic innovator. And his crea- creativity really, it, it comes down the line to us. Chris, you brought it up. I think that while there aren't a lot of people that could make a crankshaft, as you pointed out, John, in the same fashion that he did, and, and that is mind-blowing, you do have to be creative uh, every single day when you're on the job. Whether it's interpreting the manuals and fixing an airplane, you're always trying to figure out how to solve the puzzle. That's To me, that was one of the aspects of the job that I really loved was the ability to get in there, find a problem figure out a a solution and then work that solution. It was a fantastic career. Like Chris, I'm getting towards the end of of my career, but I really enjoyed the ability to be able to be creative. And I think we owe that to him and his creativity really brought us where we're at today. And he never received any of the, never mind the accolades, but any financial rewards for what he did. He worked with the Wright brothers for very low money. In fact, he left the Wright Brothers at one point and went with Cal Rogers because Cal Rogers was doing the, uh, the the race, if you will, from the East Coast to the West Coast. It had to be done in a fixed number of days. I think it was 30 days, which they did not accomplish. And there was a bunch of prize money that went with that if you got it accomplished. And I think Cal Rogers did it in 40-something days, 49 days, or whatever the number was. And the airplane crashed repeatedly. Charlie Taylor had to put it back together again. Uh, multiple engine rebuilds. But that was a sign of the times back then. Reliability was non-existent. And, you know, the airplane was subject to, to storms and, and pilot fatigue and all sorts of issues. So it was challenging, but he, he stuck with it. The way they did it was they flew the train tracks from the East Coast to the West Coast. And there was a train that had... Charlie Taylor in a, in a boxcar full of parts and his tools to fix the airplane. So they would leave the, the car off and in a siding someplace and wait for the airplane or if the airplane was already there and then he'd fix it. And uh, that's how they got the job done. So it was an interesting period of time in aviation back then in the early 1900s. You know, he was there for the first plane crash, too. He did the first accident investigation, ironically. I mean, he just was the jack of all trades, doing it all back then. And and like Greg said, that they didn't want him to go flying because they didn't want to lose him as a mechanic. So there, Bob, you went and abandoned us and went and became a pilot. Well, I'm still a mechanic at heart, John. Yeah, okay. <laughs> well, we, we give him a hard time about that all the time, John. 
they certainly do. <laughs> that, that's another trait for mechanics. And that, in fact, Charlie Taylor apparently had that same trait because whenever the Wright brothers were not in Dayton, he and, and the Wright brothers had a sister. And he and the sister clearly didn't get along. In one of the books, it, it says that she fired him repeatedly, but he wouldn't listen to her. And then the, when the brothers came back, they palmed the water down and got on with it. But when they left, the two of them would fight again. He's just a typical cranky mechanic. <laughs> yeah, yep. that's, that, that's why I put up with John on this show. So, <laughs> Yeah, I think but. the term, the term curmudgeon fits <laughs> in, in many instances. Yeah, really. So, gentlemen, with that being said, and what uh, Charles Taylor did to to really, you know, foster the true aviation mechanic and, and his contribution, where do you see maintenance going with aviation, especially now with private space coming into existence? And I mean, is the demand there? Is there going to be a different type of quote maintenance technician? that develops uh, in the future? I think that the, the demand is going to be there. It's going to increase. We, we, we do need to make sure that uh, mechanics are certified who are working on these autonomous vehicles as we move forward. Right now, there is no real certification for mechanics working on drone aircraft. But I think as we progress, we see the airspace being taken up by these personal drones and soon to be commercial drones. Heck, we even saw Kroger is going to start um, delivery of groceries with drones. And as this airspace is taken up, we need to make sure that there are people who fix these autonomous vehicles in a way that, you know, we all know that they're out there. We, we need to have their ADSB reporting so that we're no, we know they're there. We don't run into them. They don't run into us. It's going to be important as we move forward to, to capture that. Well, in today's environment, the mechanics are turning more into electronics people than in computer repair people than mechanics that we know in the past. Although they still have to maintain the engines and still have to change tires and brakes, it's definitely taken a little turn here towards the electronic futures. Yeah, so so John, the, the, the Aviation Mechanics Coalition, we have really been looking hard at this for quite a while now. You know, the, the industry, we went from the Wright brothers, uh, then we then we, we hit the jet age, and uh, we flew 737-100s and 27s, and uh, this is just going to be the next phase of aviation, right? So as Bob said, it'll be much more avionics and electronics oriented because of the, the, the type of propulsion systems that you use in the navigation. And a quick job search uh, will we'll, we'll show you right now, there aren't a ton of jobs available for technicians right now. If you if you look on the job boards, they want to hire pilots and photographers. But the technician part of this is coming. And when you start looking at some of the technician jobs, there's not a standard. And we think, as Bob said, we think there needs to be a standard. But secondly, they're kind of all over the place. Some folks maybe want employers want a, a degree. Some folks are requiring an AMP license plus a certification. And the FAA is currently talking about certifications, but they're kind of leaving the curriculum up to the individual school. So there's, if you ask me, a lot to be organized right now to make sure that we maintain the integrity of, of the, uh, you know, the maintenance 
of these new aircraft. And granted, they're going to fly in a different airspace, but they're they're still going to be flying over people, especially when you talk about and you mentioned air taxis where you're going to you're going to show up and pick up six people and fly them over to the airport. Whether it's got a pilot or it's completely autonomous, again, they're electric, they're more drone technology, and and we're just going to have to meet that need. You know, and and we'd be remiss if we didn't talk about the shortage. COVID did not slow down the, the coming mechanic shortage. If anything, it exacerbated it because of the number of folks that left the industry when everything stopped flying last year, we're talking about thousands of mechanics that took early retirement, folks that maybe were going to work another five or seven years said, you know, I'm going to go do something else right now. I've, I've been here long enough. And that's going to hurt because if you look at if some of the figures that are out there last year, the enrollment dropped in part 147 A&P schools. And again, graduating, I think, 25% less than they did the year before and enrollment down 28%. So the the numbers, again, it's indicating exactly what we thought was going to happen, only it's happening quicker. We had a little bit of a flatter slope than we do now because as the airlines are coming back, and you can see by by most of what you're reading in the press, they're, they're predicting that they'll be selling their entire schedules pre-COVID uh, over the summer and into the fall. And uh, all of the majors are predicting break-even IQ3 or Q4 of this year. So I think it was brilliant that the airlines were forward thinking enough to, to do everything they could to keep as many people as possible when, when we were flying 5% of the schedule. But it's still going to come down to how many people can be hired, how many mechanics can be hired over the next five years, uh, because the numbers didn't change, right? Even, even with everything out there, I think Boeing's prediction only dropped a few thousand people. So that number is still up around 193,000 additional mechanics in North, in North America over the next 20 years. So lots of things, uh, you know, again, as you said at the beginning, this is a great profession. It's, it's one where, where you can go to school, out of high school, and really be out there working and making a, a really good living, you know, if you have the if you have what it takes to do the job, right? And as you said, it's not an easy job. In many cases, you're outside, you're in the dark, you're in the weather, and you still have to produce a product that is 100% ready to rock and roll in the morning. So lots of moving pieces here. But again, what Bob and I are doing as far as the, the Aviation Mechanics Coalition is we're really, and again, with the uh, Teamsters Airline Division, we have been out on the road talking to kids in uh, different venues about the profession and letting kids know because a lot a lot of uh, high school kids don't even realize that this is an option right so if you look at the percentage of women that have mechanics licenses is a very dismal 2.24 percent right so really really less than three percent of all of the issued licenses belong to women we have underserved communities where kids just don't even see that as a possibility and these are all places we need to tap. We're, we also lose a, a lot of uh, veterans that come out of the service that weren't in aviation while they were in. And we're trying to create a pathway right now for those folks to get their hands uh, dirty and, and learn a little bit about aviation maintenance and see if that can become a pathway for them as well. Chris, why don't you expand upon that pathway? You know, I'm familiar with it. So for our listeners, tell them what, what you have come up with and and where you are with it. 
Yeah, so we're we're actually waiting on the uh, FAA educational grant. We think we have a pretty good chance of getting it, but we we've developed and, and and done it with the aid of a longtime aviation educator, an aviation basics program that will allow a high school kid or or someone in the military that it has nothing to do with aviation in about 250 hours to get the basic math and some hands-on, you know, electrical, not so much power plants, but think airframe in general, so that, uh, you know, you've been exposed now to, to the point where you could actually come out with this certification and go to work at an MRO or go to work or get into an apprenticeship program at one of the airlines because you have, and Bob, uh, you you know what it is, it's called airplane smarts. John, you you do as well. It's You can get in the shop, you can learn how to safety wire, you can learn how to, to uh, shoot a rivet and, and basically just understand what goes on in aviation maintenance to the degree where if I had to pick, if, if I had to hire a candidate into a program, I would much rather have someone that spent uh, 250 hours doing some hands-on work than taking somebody fresh off the street that may or may not be able to turn a wrench. So that's it in a nutshell, Bob, if you have anything you want to add to that. No, I think you summed that up quite well, Chris. <laughs> Thanks. I could use one word to describe it, and that's opportunity. It's a program that People that are in this business, you and I and, you know, Bob, Chris and I and, and some others have figured out how to provide some opportunities for people who may not have the opportunity to move forward in their life. So it is a great program. I support it fully. So I'm glad to see that we're on the cusp of maybe getting this thing into high gear and, and being able to help a bunch of people and help our industry at the same time. Yeah, and, and that was the goal, John. You know, we we saw the the pipeline drying up. Bob and I looked at each other about five years ago and went, you know, there's not going to be anybody left to do this pretty soon. And you know, the the industry saw it coming as well. But Bob can tell you straight up, when we started having this conversation with employers five six years ago, they just looked at us like we were nuts. It actually took the Boeing report to to shake everybody up a little bit and go, oh, we're already almost in the shortage. You know. Hey, gentlemen, I got a question. John and I have met previous shows. We were down at Embry-Riddle, and um, we were talking to a variety of different students, so it was a couple on the uh, maintenance tech side. And we had one of the uh, students, female, and she's very enthusiastic about maintenance and maintenance tech. What is it about the maintenance side of the house that hasn't been very attractive women? Is it just because we don't do a good job in encouraging and targeting women to get into this side of the profession? Is it a stigma that, well, it's maintenance, I don't want to get dirty kind of thing? What is it that we could be doing better to get more women involved on that side of the house? So, Greg, I, th- I think it's a combination of both. The craft isn't really promoted well for women or folks in underserved communities. And there is a perception out there that you're a mechanic. I mean, people think of, I think his name was Lyle, the goofy mechanic that was, you know, just not very bright. And, you know, that couldn't be further from the truth. That's not the way maintenance operates. And just, you know, you don't have a college, you don't have to have a college degree to become a mechanic technician. And because of that, I think the perception is that 
you know, it's a it's a lesser type of job. When the opposite is that absolutely true, as you know. And we really do have to do a better job when we're talking to high school guidance counselors or frankly even middle school guidance counselors. The trades specifically aircraft maintenance. I mean, this is a, a fantastic career. You can provide for your family, you can buy all the toys you want because they're making decent money now and there's far fewer of them. I mean, it really does need to be sold better to younger folks. That's that's my thought. Bob, you hit on it when you said guidance counselors. I'm glad you did that because many times a kid will be, for lack of a better word, steered in the direction of, uh, I don't know what somebody's idea of what they should be doing is. And I think uh, where we live in today's world is that, you know, it is understood that women can do anything and you don't have to say, oh, well, you're, you're pretty good at STEM. Maybe you should be an engineer or a teacher. You can be a mechanic, right? And I think at the younger age, you, you really start to have to promote that as well. I think that, you know, one of the things that this part of the industry is now really requiring is more specialized people. With the complexity of avionics, it's not just about going in and plug and play a radio or something like that. You're having to troubleshoot a lot of software. So you become more of a, a specialized technician than just somebody that unscrews a couple of screws and plugs and plays a new radio or something into the stack. And I think that those kinds of things, if we emphasize that, those are the cool challenges. I mean, computers and computer science is the big thing. In a, in a lot of these uh, college programs and even in high school programs, why not encourage them? You know, because that's the exercise of the brain. That's the challenge. It's not like you said, just going out and turning a wrench. You really do have the. You have to have a very deep knowledge of a variety of different types of systems and, of course, techniques and and skills to be able to maintain the complete airplane, not just a small segment of the airplane. You know, I was on an airplane not too long ago that we returned to the gate for a maintenance problem. And of course, it was on the my airline that I worked for, so I'm, I'm hiding behind the seat in case somebody recognizes me. And uh, maintenance came out, and you know, what you expect when you see maintenance come out, you expect to see a toolbox. And this guy came on with a laptop and a cable, and he went into the cockpit, and then I could see that he, he obviously plugged it in somewhere. And every once in a while, I get a glimpse, and he's up there and punching away the keyboards, and they're throwing uh, switches and popping circuit breakers, checking out the system. So it's not what it used to be. In my day, which was a long time ago, you know, you went out, when you, you walked around, you had a screwdriver and a couple of wrenches in your pocket and a, and a rag because you you know, leaks, you'd be dealing with leaks or changing uh, dirty components. That's not today. Today, it's more and more electronics and, and computers. People don't realize that some of these modern airplanes have hundreds of computers on them. You know, the computer may be the size of a, an SD card, but there's no less a computer, and they're controlling pieces. They're computers. They don't need to have a, a keyboard. They don't need to have a a screen, but they're just cards that fit in and they control a piece of the airplane. You know, the other thing, John, that I've been thinking about is, you know, from our safety perspective, 
you know, one of the things that I depend on, I mean, I'm ops oriented. Yes, I do know, you know, a variety of different aspects of, of maintenance and I've maintained my airplane to an extent, but I don't have the depth of knowledge that, you know, you all have. The big thing is an accident investigation is having somebody that has that depth of knowledge because when we see the airplane, it isn't pristine or the helicopter. And it does take a very trained eye to identify something that is out of the ordinary, especially after it's been involved in an event that makes it out of the ordinary. And I think we need to have more of that expertise in our field of business to make aviation safety better because we have to we have to be able to identify those mechanical systems, structures, power plant type uh, events that have either caused or contributed to accidents. And I don't think we have that depth of knowledge. We have a lot of ops knowledge out there. We just don't have a lot of mechanical knowledge that looks at these aircraft like we do. That's true. That's true. And then the blend between all the electronics and all the mechanicals going on. And I've been reading some reports lately, and, and quite frankly, I think that they may, be, have, may have missed the boat on a couple of them or at least missed potential items that could have been identified and recommendations made for corrections. But you can't fix it all. You put it on your radar, and when it comes up again, you try to try to get people to correct it. Yeah, and John, I, I got I to gotta give you some kudos here. Bob, Bob uh, sent me a text while we were talking. Um, we should talk a little bit about Go Team training. You have been instrumental in my career in training me, but not only me, at least a couple of hundred uh, of my coworkers and Bob's coworkers over the years. These folks have deployed on a number of incidents, and it's through the training that you provided for these folks that the NTSB has always been very appreciative of the subject matter experts that we brought to an investigation. So. I got to tell you, thank you so much, and I look forward to doing more of that uh, in the future. Well, both Greg and I have have worked with the teams. Does Greg, you've been doing the the uh, local? I yeah, think. I do all the training for twelve twenty four. Oh, okay. For, uh, for all of their accident investigation, and I got a course that I teach down at Embry Riddle in Prescott because we use their crash lab to emphasize a lot of the hands on training. So I'm hoping to expand that as soon as uh, we get beyond the COVID issues. Yeah, there's a lot of work to be done in that whole area. Identifying these problems and identifying them early with SMS. You know, one of the areas that, that uh, we need to expand for both line pilots and, and line mechanics, that is the people who are actually out there flying the airplane or fixing the airplanes, is to get that knowledge that resides in their head that they know every day, but never seems to make it into the equation to what's going on. And it used to bug me like crazy when I, we would do an accident and we'd interview some people in an organization, whether it was a pilot or mechanic, and the one that comes to mind right now was a pilot issue. But anyway, when we interviewed the pilots that work for this company, several of them said, we knew he was going to have an accident. We saw it coming. Well, you saw it coming. Why didn't you tell somebody? And the simple answer is there was no mechanism at that time to tell anybody. So we need to work on a mechanism that gets that knowledge 
that's out there. It's not, and it's not telling tales out of school. It's being proactive on a safety issue, getting some people the the additional training maybe that they need so that they see that they're making a mistake and they're screwing up, and we do it before somebody dies. So there's a lot of work to be done in all of those proactive areas. And Chris, you said you're you know relatively short time. I know you got five or six years to go. It's going to take all of those five or six years to get any serious improvements in any of those areas. So we all have our work cut out for us in the future. You know, one of the things that in your title is an international rep, John and I have dissected a number of accidents, foreign accidents, especially with Lion Air, where we have identified serious, serious maintenance issues that ultimately led to the loss of that 737 MAX. It didn't start with the pilots. It actually started 30 days before with maintenance folks not doing what they needed to do, using parts that they shouldn't have been using. And when we look at the international community, what do we need to do in an international sense to get everybody on board with the fact that I mean, we've seen it. It's nothing new. And I'm not saying anything out of school. The fact is that there are a lot of countries that operate airlines whose maintenance sucks. I mean, it's obvious. I mean, that's the only way to put it. And and I don't care if people want to beat me up for that. But I've been around the world. I've seen these kinds of programs. We've seen the shortcomings. And the question is, what is it going to take in an international sense to get everybody on board to maintain those aircraft to a standard? We we talk about it all the time with pilots. You know, there's a lot of a lot of discussion about the fact that pilots in certain countries do not live up to other pilots in a variety of other countries and, and the training and, and just the overall operation of an airline. What's it going to take to get all these people on board to have the highest levels of professionalism, to have the highest levels of integrity, to, to not be afraid to say, you know what, this airplane isn't going anywhere today, or try to put a Band-Aid on it and make it go around the circuit because, uh, you know, they, because of their culture, feel that failure isn't an option. Hey, Bob, you, you've interacted uh, with a, a lot more of the international carriers than I have. So uh, I'll back off and let you uh, run with that if you want. Yeah, so it's a it's a great question, Greg. I'm not sure there's a, obviously an easy solution. Dealing with uh, a lot of international unions and talking about how their maintenance works, there's a wide array of, of standards. And I guess working through other agencies, ICAO and the FAA and everybody getting together, to talk about one world standard, it's difficult given the politics of the world. You you brought up the point that it's failure in some countries not to take an airplane. How do you get around that? I, it's a fantastic question, I, and I wish there was a good solution. Yeah, I agree, Bob. I, I think it's it's really it comes down to it, to safety culture, right? And and I know through SMS in the U.S., you know, we're trying to get a standardized safety culture. The question is. How do you get the rest of the world to buy into that safety culture? I mean, it's there to a degree. Nobody's nobody's out there trying to 
trying to crash an airplane or circumvent maintenance. But Greg, you're you're spot on, right? What's critical in the in the United States might not be critical uh, somewhere else. We saw during the first Gulf, they were parking a bunch of uh, the uh, Antonov 124s on the ramp out by our hangar, and uh, we, of course, being mechanics, we had to go crawl around it. And we noticed that their limits on tires were. Can you see the air on the inside as opposed to ours? If you can see two or three sets of cords, it's coming off the airplane. So definitely different operating specs for for different countries. There sure is. In some areas, the Europeans are ahead of us in their safety standards. So I'd like to merge some of what I see being done in in the UK and France and in Denmark and Germany implemented here in the States not to give up our other areas where we're better than than anyone else in the world, but just to get those standards standardized across the, across the globe would be nice. And what we see in Asia with the accidents in any of the areas in Asia, wow, it's just, it's almost like uh, car accidents. They crash them and they just get another one and they keep on going. I just don't think uh, they take safety anywhere near as serious in many of these developing countries as they do in the rest of the world. Greg, you've done a bunch of accidents over there. Yeah. Well, that's my concern, John. And the question is why? We're all operating the same type of airplane, whether it's a 737 here in the United States, a 737 in Indonesia, a 737 in Ethiopia. It's a 737. So why is it that the maintenance on that aircraft should be any different, just like the flying of those aircraft should be any different and the training on those aircraft should be any different. Because when you have all of these code share agreements and, you know, I buy a ticket on United and I end up on some foreign carrier, they're technically supposed to be operating that aircraft at an equivalent level of safety as that I would find on United Airlines. And that simply isn't necessarily true. And the question is, why? We've been around. We have ICAO. We have all these sets of standards and these you know, best practices, and we've done all of these things. Why is it still not more standardized across the world? I mean, it's not like we're having to invent the wheel. The, the wheel's already been invented, and we've perfected it to an extent. But why can't we get people buying into it? We all talk about it. I mean, we've all been to conferences, international conferences, where everybody stands up and is in agreement, whether it's, you know, Thailand, Indonesia, the United, who all, everybody agrees. But why don't they practice it? And I know that based on my experience, a lot of it is based on societal culture. I've been bitching about this for quite a long time. And that is, while pilots are trained to a standard, Um, We've always talked about the fact that over in Asia, you don't challenge seniority. But we broke that that wall down here through crew resource management. Well, they have crew resource management over there. It's just that when they get in the cockpit, they revert back to societal culture that says you don't challenge seniority. So we have to break all of these things down and come to a, you know, an agreement, a standard, uh, you know, an education. That when you get into the front end of that airplane or you're working on it underneath that airplane, that, you know, societal culture, everything goes out the window because safety, safety is the priority. And 
that hierarchy and anything else doesn't take precedent, that best practices, operating when nobody's looking, doing the procedures when nobody's looking, and doing them all correctly has got to be the standard. That is so true, and it is so hard to change a culture. And I don't mean like a, a, a just a corporate culture of any kind anywhere, trying to go yeah. from business as usual to this is the new norm, everybody get on board, because humans are highly resistant to change as well. Yeah, we certainly have we have our work cut out for us. Yeah, it's just that, you know, we can be very critical of each other. We all know the problem. It's just why aren't certain countries, certain organizations, certain airlines making the effort? They talk a, they talk a good game. They just, you know, they talk the talk, but they don't walk the walk. And, and how do we emphasize that? I mean, you look at, you look at Indonesia. I mean, they're a perfect example. They lose Lion Air. They lose an M737. They have, you know, several other accidents after that. Ethiopia is the same way. You know, and the CEO of Ethiopian Airlines, ah, we got the best trained pilots. Yeah, well, guess what? You crashed the MAX, and now you had two airplanes. One landed at a closed airport that's under construction. Another one almost landed there. So if you have the best trained pilots in the world, then where's the problem? That you got, you know, two flight crews trying to land at an airport that doesn't exist technically. I mean, you know, everybody talks the good story. But you got to, you know, actions speak louder than words. And right now their actions are speaking louder than words in the wrong way. All right. We talked about diversity a few minutes ago. And uh, as you guys were talking about that before we went off on a tangent, I was thinking about the aerospace maintenance skills competition. And the two largest female groups that come to the competition are from two airlines represented by your organization. So I find that uh, interesting that obviously somebody within the hierarchy on both sides, the union and the company, felt that there was some value in sending those people to the competition. So, And I know, Chris, that you were involved with that, so I'd like to thank you for that. Yeah, and it's it's funny because I worked on the line with a couple of those women, and they they're just fantastic folks to work with. I, I got to tell you, and I just think I think there should be more of it. No, I think so too because it is it it also uh, you know reaches out to the young women to say I can do that as well. You know, so we need to we need to do more of that. Thank God the competition's coming back next year. Yes, yes, and, and I'm looking forward to that as well. And and honestly, those types of situations, and you know, in our newsletter, I did a big write-up on them as well, because they're the ambassadors. They're the ones we want out there in the field with us talking to young women about, hey, you know, this is something you can do, and this is why. Yes. Well, we've talked this stuff to death, so I'd just like to wish Charlie Taylor a happy birthday. This, hopefully this will be on on May 24th, his birthday, because he would be over 100. Uh, 150. You're, you're catching up to him. You're catching up to him, John. <laughs> <laughs> That's not a bad thing. That's all. It, it's just youthful wisdom there, John. I mean, you know, that's the good thing. The, the longer you've been around, the more wisdom and philosophy and, and uh, philosophical you've become. So that's why I always appreciate doing the show with you. That's the way it's supposed to work anyway. 
gentlemen. It's been a pleasure. I know that we tried to cover a broad spectrum of things, but uh, we greatly appreciate your perspective, your input. And as a consequence of being a guest on this show, you have now become an official friend of the show, the friend of uh, the flight safety detectives. And with that comes the uh, responsibility that anytime we need subject matter experts, you cannot run, you cannot hide. We know where to find you, and you will be back on the show. <laughs> Give us your expertise. <laughs> so, welcome to the family. <laughs> uh, well, thank you. It's it, it's been a wonderful uh, conversation, and and I really appreciate you inviting us on. Yeah, for sure. I really appreciate the opportunity. This was fun. Thank you. I want to thank our our listeners as well because we get inspiration. We get, of course, ideas from our listeners, and so. Thank you for providing us your input, your comments, good, bad, or indifferent. You can continue to do that by way of our email at lightsafetydetectives with an S at gmail.com. We encourage you. We want to know what you like listening to, what you like hearing about. John and I, through this past year and a half, we've diverted a little bit from our typical standard shows, and that is dissecting accidents. And we will be getting back to that on a more regular basis. We're revamping some things. So we will be back to dissecting that. But we also like to use the show to bring different perspectives to a variety of subjects in, in aviation. And I think this discussion, as well as some others on past shows, does just that. It, it gives you, the listener, a little better perspective, things you didn't know about. I mean, every time I do a show, like with Bob and Chris and, and some of our previous guests, I learn something new. And that's really what this show is all about. And that's what John and I try to bring to you, the listeners. So again, we thank you very much for your support, the fact that you listen. Definitely please give us uh, the ratings on your podcast providers because that's what helps our show. That's what helps grow our show. So whoever you listen to, uh, Spotify or Apple or whatever, please give us your ratings. And we expect you to make them five-star ratings. But, <laughs> <laughs> but again, that's, uh, that's what we're all about is just trying to bring a variety of perspectives in uh, this thing we call aviation and aerospace. So with that, John... I know that uh, you're going to thank our sponsors before you give us the last words. Yes, just reminding everybody that this show is brought to you by PAMA, the Professional Aviation Maintenance Association, as well as Avemco Insurance. Avemco specializes in general aviation av uh, insurance, including how loss and, and pilot insurance, flight instructor insurance, so if you need it, renew your policy, give them a call. If you're buying an airplane, give them a call. Get a quote for the price. And don't forget to mention flight safety detectives because it'll get you a 5% discount. There's nothing to sneeze at. They're very aggressive with their business, and they're very forgiving because they even insure Greg. Hey, 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 hey. <laughs> that's, that's, not, that's not fair. I'm just I guess even. I deserve it since I'm, I know you are. I knew it was eventually going to come out. Listen, I'm I'm amazed that in this podcast you didn't bring out what you usually do, me getting my initial flying lessons from one of the Wright brothers. I think it was Orville, wasn't it? <laughs> Just because I flew in a J-2 
tail drag. It doesn't mean I'm that old. The airplane was older than me when I climbed in it. Yeah, well, I was doing some research on you, John. I understand that uh, you are one of the first pilots of a hang glider back in 1898. So. <laughs> a balloon. <laughs> <laughs> okay, and if you're going to go flying, everybody out there, two things. We're not out of this pandemic yet. So please, wear a mask, wash your hands off, and don't go indoors to large gatherings. Let's get this thing down behind us. And if you do go flying, please do a good pre-planning session. Do a great pre-flight and fly safely. To listen to more episodes of the show, go to flightsafetydetectives.com or the Professional Aviation Maintenance Association at PAMA.org and wherever you find your favorite podcasts. Catch us next time when John Golia and Greg Fife talk about all things aviation. Thanks for listening.